Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. Some stories are harder to find than others. History can be revealed or concealed in buildings and street names. What happens to the collective memory of the city when buildings are removed and street names changed? A sense of loss has become a recurring theme in conversations on this podcast. Demolition and displacement have been part of Glasgow's story for you know, considerably more than 100 years. So in this episode, we explore the invisible history of a shifting landscape. In the rapidly changing city of the 21st century, there are few clues to Glasgow's radical past. No maps to show where battles were fought, and sometimes won, in the working class struggle for decent housing at a fair rent. That struggle has never ended, as recent headlines have reminded us. History seems to be repeating more than 100 years after Mary Barber's rent strike victory. Tragically, we seem to have learned little from Cathy McCormick's tireless fight against dampness and mould in 1980's Easter House. So are we destined to keep making the same mistakes? With housing emergencies growing in every city, a new project aims to share and learn from Glasgow's proud campaigning history. So we are delighted to welcome today's guest, Joey Simons, co-founder of the Glasgow Housing Struggle Archive, which aims to record, share, and discuss the past and present of working class organizing in the city. Joey is a member of the National Committee of Living Rent, Scotland's Tenants' Union, which has more than a thousand active members. He is also an artist and writer, working on projects with the um, Centre for Contemporary Art, the CCA, Platform, Glasgow Sculpture Studios, the Edwin Morgan Trust, and the Travelling Gallery. He uses words to good and often creatively provocative effect. In January this year, Glasgow City Heritage Trust hosted Joey's talk, Giza Hoos, which looked at how housing struggles have shaped and been shaped by Glasgow's ever-changing housing stock. It was a stimulating hour, and it began with thoughts on how city design, the layout and streets of, of and buildings, um, might enable or deter riots, and ended with a poem by Edwin Morgan casting a critical eye on Scotland's favourite bird, and this was on Burns Night. So we're now looking forward to another stimulating discussion with you, Jerry. And you know, okay, perhaps you know we we might start by finding out you know what led you to co-found the the archive. And this is kind of coming from your your, your Burns Night talk, which revealed quite a depth of housing history. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself and how you became involved in the Glasgow housing struggle? Sure. So. Um Yes, I've mainly had a background in political organising and campaigning in Glasgow since a, a pretty young age. And that was actually 20th anniversary of the big marches against the Iraq war. And that was maybe the start of my involvement in political organising and campaigning in Glasgow. Right. But especially over the last uh, five years or so, I've been heavily involved in tenant and housing organisation through Live and Rent, which is a tenants union organising um, against evictions and for rent controls, public housing across Scotland. And I was involved in, in helping to set up the first branch of the union in Glasgow. And Living Rent is yeah, involved in this in day-to-day activism and campaigning. But I've always had a, an interest in, in Glasgow's history and working-class history in particular. And through Living Rent, trying to connect those past struggles and dig into a bit of the history and the tradition of different housing movements to provide more of a context to, to the day-to-day organising we were doing in the union. So through a couple of personal projects myself as well, 
And it was seeing how history uh, was easily lost and getting buried uh, in amidst uh, yeah, Glasgow's constant redevelopment. So one thing was involved in was up in Eastern House through the Arts Centre platform, looking at the life and work of Freddie Anderson, who was an Irish poet and playwright and writer and a tenant activist in Garthamlick. He moved to Glasgow after the war. And I first came across his name basically at an event around uh, radical theatre in Scotland. So looking at the work of Glasgow Unity Theatre and uh, 784. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Someone mentioned, uh, yeah, this guy Freddie Anderson, that he'd written a play about John McLean. Right. uh, uh, The great revolutionary organiser on Clydeside around the time of the First World War. I was just quite amazed that I hadn't heard of this guy, Freddie Anderson, at all. You know, despite all my interest, despite thinking I'd read read everything around this kind of thing. So I started digging into him uh, in the archives in the Mitchell Library, then just meeting people in libraries and at funerals and at buses and mentioning Freddie's name and people giving me their own archives and their own stories and eventually uh, republishing uh, some of Freddie's work in a collection called Let Us Act For Ourselves. And it was really interesting in the context of Easter House that this whole period of radical cultural and political organising and the scheme from the 1960s right up until the 1990s was basically not part of any public narrative. So there was major regeneration, redevelopment happening in Easter House. But the story of people's own fight for what they fought for um, across the decades is not part of this narrative of what the future of the scheme is going to be. So now through different personal projects around aspects of working class history and through my involvement in living rent as well, I just started to see how important it was to try to collate some of the elements of Glasgow's house and struggle history because I'm, I'm not an academic. It's really just things I've learned through other people, other discussions and yeah, that history is is out there, but it's quite hard to find, you know. So I was in the Mitchell Library. I've been going up to Glasgow Uni Library, and you get a special pass, or you're just trying to find, yeah, these kind of unpub or out of date uh, or out of print books. And yeah, just thinking, how can we share this history? What is the form in which that information can be more uh, easily accessible? Right. And during. During the first uh, lockdown, I was working as a tutor for the Workers' Educational Association, and I had a chance to design and deliver an online course on Glasgow's house and history. Um, so over the course of eight weeks, with different Living Rent members, kind of ran this course looking at uh, eight different post-war housing struggles in Glasgow, now finding and sharing resources and link- linking it into the the kind of day-to-day campaigning we were also involved in. So. Through that course, through discussions with different house and scholars in Glasgow, like Neil Gray and Valerie Wright, think, and also with other archives, so for example, the Mayday Rooms Archive in London and the Spirit of Revolt Archive here in Glasgow, yeah, just really had the idea to try to create a space online, initially at least, where all these different house and histories could be shared, could be critiqued and put into yeah, wider historical context and in a way kind of challenge some of the narratives of that history um, that are current at the moment. So uh, one one thing we used in the course was uh, Glasgow City Council have uh, an official illustrated timeline of Glasgow housing change. 
And that whole history is just told basically through a series of legislative acts. There's a brief nod to Mary Barber yep. in 1915, but the story kind of ends in uh, house and stock transfer, <laughs> the elimination <laughs> of Glasgow's council <laughs> house and stock, the rise of private ownership. And yes, we really wanted to challenge that narrative. And even there's a Shelter Scotland as well, have a really useful resource mm-hmm. on Scotland's housing crisis like over the past 150 years. But even in that approach, you know, tenants and political movements that fought mm-hmm. for good housing over the years are are quite marginal to that story or appear mainly as, as victims yeah. rather than as agents of, of change. So, you know, all of those parts of the story are, are true and part of it in terms of legislation and in terms of uh, that constant crisis. But there's also this entire hidden history of tenant movements and housing struggles that have shaped Glasgow as a city and continue to do so and have also shaped it in their defeat at various times or their marginalisation. So, yeah, I think the idea was just to provide a counterpoint to that, to connect what we're doing today in Living Rent to past struggles and at least to yeah recover and share that history and then people can decide in a way what to do what to do with it and add to it. Um, so I, I guess it's come from lots of different different angles. Um, but yeah, I think it's just fundamentally though, it's just always an interest in Glasgow and walking around the city and trying to figure out what the hell is actually happening here. Yeah, how, how, it, how it all came about. Yeah, that's what fascinates me about, about Glasgow too. Yeah, uh, dig, digging into all those hidden aspects of Glasgow history and it's, it's teasing out those stories because you know, they've been edited out of the official narrative, but they actually are part of our total history and we need to kind of, you know, somehow figure a way to feather them all back in again. Um, so history can be properly told from all perspectives. So fascinating stuff. Um, okay, your archive doesn't occupy a physical space as yet, but the website does open the way to parts of the city that have disappeared or changed beyond recognition. So can you tell us about the aims of the archive who is it for, how it will be used and developed over time? Yeah, so I guess starting out, we had yeah, a few different aims for the archive and definitely as a project to develop over the years. So one was just this space where tenants and community groups and housing organisers can more easily access the information, the text, the histories that do exist about Glasgow's tradition of radical tenant struggles. So, yeah, not necessarily even kind of finding new primary documents or creating this physical archive, but to centralise the information that does currently exist, but which is spread across a number of physical archives and it's quite difficult to access. So there's not like one book, for example, that you could go get out at the Mitchell Library on the history of Glasgow's tenant movement. So... One aim is just to centralise and to try and collate the information that exists. Uh, another aim was to place the house and struggles of today in that wider historical context to draw lessons from yeah, 100 years of campaign and demonstrations and occupations and rent strikes to look at the kind of tactical and strategic solutions that tenants have come up with in different situations over the past uh, century and look to apply them or learn from them where possible in today's struggles. 
And another one was just to also provide a space for yeah, activists and union organizers, historians, scholars to contribute documents and photographs and critical critical reflections on house and history to provide a space for people to write up contributions to share things they've written before and yeah almost a, like a space is a little training ground where we can can get better at doing these kinds of things and the last one was to also start to document and archive the history of live and rent itself as a tenants union right. so over the past five years it's gone through a huge number of changes and it's yeah it's very quickly that that story can get lost, especially there's not a lot of time in the kind of day-to-day organising to sit down, record, and to collate documents and reflections. So mm-hmm. those were, yeah, some of the the yeah main aims from setting out. But started as a project with myself and Francis uh, mm-hmm. Lingard, who designed the website with support from the WEA and the Lipman Miliband Trust, but. We've done a lot of different events. We've spoken with a lot of different groups and we're looking this year to establish a kind of collective that can take hold of the archive and decide um, yeah, how we want to resource it and what we want to do with it going forward. Sure. It's, it's really interesting because it's, it's quite topical for me um, with one of my other hats on. I'm the chair of Governor Bass Building Preservation Trust, but I was for a very brief period the chair of the Governor Bass Community Trust, and yeah. they have their their archive, which is all to do with working class struggles as well, and is headed up by archivist Paula Larkin. I think is absolutely core to that project, and the fact that this all does need to be properly documented. You know what happened in in Glasgow. It's just fascinating history, and it's got to be put down somewhere. So that's that 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 to me is absolutely central to what you know we've been doing at Governor Bass. And I think um, with Paula, yeah, look, I've known Paula for a long time and she's been kind of invaluable as a resource of uh, support for the Glasgow House and Struggle Archive. Mm-hmm. So uh, she led a, a great workshop for us at the, the Deep End Space Yeah. on, you know, we're not uh, <laughs> trained archivists or professionals, you know, we're coming at this from a different angle. So Paula yeah, gave a great workshop on digitisation, on scanning, on record keeping uh, that we did and um, yeah recently had two other people involved in the House and Struggle Archive went along to an oral history training session that Paula and the Community Archives Heritage Group put on so I think that also that idea of gaining these skills and sharing these skills so people are able to engage in oral history document things properly and just to yeah make that a public resource rather than just a kind of something in the hands of specialists only. So Paula's been, yeah, invaluable. She's, she's a great mentor. I, I have yep. tons of time for Paula. I really like her. Because another um, thing that they had, the 20th anniversary of the Governor Hill Baths mm-hmm. uh, occupation, yes. so they had that Occupy, Occupy, Occupy event. So uh, we spoke at that on... Uh, post-war squatting movement in Glasgow, mm-hmm. so 1946 to 1948, the, the mass occupation of uh, former army camps and then the, the occupation of kind of abandoned mansions and buildings, uh, press offices uh, in Glasgow after the war, which, yeah, again, it's, it's just about understanding your own history. Like, I knew about that squatting movement in London, for example. But not up here. Famous example of, yeah, Kensington Mansion's been squatted. But the Glasgow side of it, you know, there's 
the main thing I've read about it was in this unpublished PhD by Charles Johnson. So, yeah, we were able to examine some of that history to share it at the Occupy conference, and then it was turned into a part of this graphic novel <laughs> that came out from the conference. So it was really amazing when, uh, yeah, this uh, comic book artist took each of the presentations at the Occupy conference and transformed it into this uh, yeah, 50-page uh, comic book. Right, I didn't know about this. This is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so really amazing. So you can get it, I think, through the, the Government Hill Baths Community Trust website. Okay. Um. So, yeah, so, yeah, with the Lee Jeans occupation, like uh, Castle Milk, uh, Claimants Union, like this whole history of occupation. So, yeah, we've been able to do things like that in terms of using the idea of the archive to speak about different aspects of house and history. But, yeah, this question of a physical archive documents, storage, record keeping, you know, that's a huge issue. <laughs> We're definitely not in a position to do that yet, but it's more about building connections with existing archives and collections that relate to this history and finding a way to maybe share resources across existing archives um, to look at this one particular aspect around Housing, yeah. Mm -hmm, so we're mm -hmm. we're trying to figure it out. All right. Well, look, tur turning to back back to housing, then, and um, the next question is, um, you know, much of Glasgow and how we live in Glasgow has been shaped by housing struggles, and yet for many of us, that's a, a hidden history. And ironically, we seem to know more about all these kind of radical campaigns from the past, such as Mary Barber's 1915 rent strike. And so can, can you bring us up to date in terms of all that housing struggle in the subsequent period? And how does the timeline run in the, in the housing struggle archive? Aye. <laughs> it's kind of a complex question. I know, to, sorry. I've been, been trying to figure it out. Um, so, yeah, I guess one thing that we've looked at is in particular these post-war uh, housing struggles so from 1945 onwards and within that framework uh, yeah urban industrial change in Glasgow so yeah we've kind of got our timeline that we're building that we've looked at a different number uh, of ones so for example uh, 1946 to 1948 the squatting movement that took place um, in Glasgow after the war, in a period you had 100,000 people homeless, 100,000 people corporation waiting lists, and this yeah, mass squatting movement led by different tenants associations, elements of the Communist Party, but also just homeless families themselves in, uh, in Govan and Gorbals in the East End, just desperate for anywhere to live. So, And again, that framing, like, Sometimes it's seen in, in a bit like this Ken Loach spirit of uh, 45 narrative where, you know, the Labour government gets elected mm -hmm. and, you know, suddenly, you know, it's this utopia emerges, you know, from on high, this mass programme of council house building. But when you look at it, there was constant struggle from below to put pressure on the Labour government, on the state and the local state in Glasgow to push forward with a housing demolition, slum demolition and the new house building that... Yeah, that, that, you know, there was different conflicts. You know, the Labour government was criminalising the squatting movement. And, yeah, so there's kind of different dynamics at play that maybe even within kind of left-wing history, yes. uh, it's important to 
to look at again. So yeah, it's a it's a really complex period that, and trying trying to understand and tease apart is quite is quite complex too. Because you've also mm-hmm. got the progressives in the council who are actually kind of you know the the conservative party and more right wing elements and um, who came together and they were really pro things like the high rises in the city. So it's quite fascinating to see that as well. Everybody seemed to be focused on housing numbers and you know um, really generating the housing numbers, but not actually giving much consideration to the shape and form of the city that they're actually developing. Yeah, yeah. And I think in a way that's even the progressives and conservative forces were forced to have that concern yeah. with housing construction because of the pressure, just the basic material public health pressure because the situation was so appalling, but also because the working class movement had a clear set of demands on housing that couldn't be ignored by no matter who was in power in the in the local state. But yeah, so that's kind of the next section like after that squatting movement, you know, high point maybe 1946-1948, the progressives getting power in Glasgow Corporation 1950-1951 and that um, huge campaign around the proposed sell-off of council houses at the Mary Lee scheme in the south of Glasgow so that's that's one of the the kind of historical struggles we've looked most at. Right. This kind of huge coalition of mainly, well, really led initially by by building workers, by the workers who were building these council houses themselves, also the tenants associations, uh, with uh, women organising, and also yeah, with the wider industrial and labour movement in Glasgow that came together to demand that there was no sell-off of this new high amenity scheme that had been built in in Mary Lee. So there's quite an amazing uh, period in a sense. I think one aspect that's most interesting is you had the building workers themselves really feeling that they had built these houses, that the houses belonged to people of Glasgow in this context of mass... um, squalor and homelessness and and um, overcrowding that was still the situation six years after the end of the war mm-hmm. that the idea that these council houses were going to be sold off for private rent you provoked this fury in the in the in the movement in Glasgow and the, and there's amazing um, yeah scenes described at the the first demonstration in George Square where, yeah, there's accounts in, in, in Charles Johnson's PhD of people talking about it being like storming the Bastille, that women had broken into the city chambers, that they were like flinging dead rats at the, the councillors as they were talking about, um, as they were talking about selling off the houses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this huge movement that developed across the, the year um, that was eventually victorious, the Labour uh, council got voted back in and they were forced basically to be voted back in on this single issue refusing to to sell off the houses so um so two of the leading figures in that movement were Ned Donaldson and Les Forster mm-hmm. who were uh, construction workers and communists who had a long history of organizing in Glasgow and were were central to that campaign so um yeah, we were involved recently in, in helping to republish uh, the pamphlet that Ned Donaldson had put together, uh, partly at the time and also in the 1990s through a project at Transmission. And his Ned Donaldson's daughter, Annie Donaldson, uh, is a professor at Strathclyde Uni, 
Right. Um, we worked with hard, yeah, to to basically and the Scottish Labour History Society to republish um, their Ned Donaldson's account of the Mary Lee uh, housing scandal in 1851 mm-hmm. with kind of new contextual essays by Valerie Wright and also James Kelman. Um, okay. Who, who, yeah, knew Ned and Les and looked at that other tradition, kind of communist tradition in Glasgow. Yes. So yeah. yeah, so that's been really, you know. That's the kind of thing that's really exciting to be involved in, that we're kind of republishing these kind of pamphlets. The proceeds of the sales of that uh, publication all go to live in rent. So, yeah, so that's been a really good project. You can get copies of it, <laughs> get in touch. Uh, it's still there. So. Very, very interested to read that. I mean, because that, that kind of you know brings us on to my next question, mm. which, you know, you're talking about this incredibly radical time, Um uh, what you're describing, you know, basically another riot in front of the city chambers, mm-hmm. completely fascinating. Um, but does that happen now? You know, has, has Glasgow become less radical as a city? And, you know, what happens to cities when communities are displaced, street names change, you know, all, all, it's, it's that poverty which used to be really obvious and clear has become more hidden as it's kind of been moved to the other areas of the city that it's been dispersed into you know parts of the city that um, you know are more remote um, so you know how, how do you handle stuff like that um, and when you you're looking at your um, 2022 exhibition in Edinburgh's collective gallery which you called um, the fearful part of it was the absence so which is really fascinating title um, what does it tell us about Glasgow's housing struggle and perhaps its relationship to the built environment? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, just to go back briefly to that kind of timeline of uh, housing struggles, so I think if you look at it, that that campaign around the house at Mary Lee in the 19, early, 1950, 1951, 52, in a way, that's kind of the last moment of that particular coalition uh, that had existed in Glasgow um, since the early 20th century terms that around this housing struggle you had the mass involvement in building workers, you had the threats of industrial action, you had engineering yards, so for example the workers at at Weird's Yard in Cathcart you know threatened to withdraw their labour if the sale went ahead this huge kind of uh, list of working class organisations and industrial trade unions and workers committee so in a way, that that never happened again <laughs> in Glasgow. Potentially a little bit, you know, around the poll tax, but subsequent housing struggles from the late nineteen fifties onwards are in a way much more localized, um, much smaller scale in a way, and really took place without this wider support of a labour movement or the threat of industrial action. So. Um, like the rent strikes, uh, tenants in the Hutch E flats in the Gordbles in the in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, the campaign of residents in Easterhouse or in Damp Mould in the eighties and nineties, like Jeanette McGinn and the campaign for rehousing a family in Castlemilk, the nineties. So kinda of incredible stuff going on, but in a completely different context than say nineteen fifteen or even nineteen fifty, where you have this kind of huge working class labour movement that provides this possible background threat of industrial action to force action house and different dynamics there. So, yeah, so I think it's it's not like a, it's difficult to say as a question of Glasgow becoming less radical. I mean, you've got huge processes of change across the 
the twentieth century, twenty first century that are affecting, you know, every city and every country um, in Britain and in in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, yeah, the kind of decline of labour and socialist movements, uh, yeah, and I guess in Glasgow as well, through the extreme extremes of deindustrialization, urban redevelopment, that yeah, the basis of the communities that had fought these struggles is constantly being Eroded. broken up, its resources um, attacked, and its its history taken away. So I think it's like yeah. It's difficult whether a place has become less radical. Aye, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a difficult way of framing it, maybe. But I think that the thing I was looking at for collective and that that quote around the fearful part of it was the absence came from uh, Lord Coburn, Henry Coburn, mm-hmm. uh, observing the huge demonstrations um, around the Reform Act mm-hmm. in the eighteen thirties. Mm-hmm. And being on this demonstration in Glasgow and, and being frightened in a way of the silence, this the fearful thing was the absence of riot and this feeling that at any moment this shock of electricity could run through mm. and explode. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the scary thing was that it didn't. And I kind of took that idea to look at aspects of the history of rioting um, in Glasgow and in particular the riots that didn't happen. So, for example, in the 1980s, these explosions in Brixton and Hansworth and Toxteth and different cities down south. Didn't happen up and, here. Yeah, it didn't happen up here. And there's an amazing documentary called Whose Town Is It Anyway? Um, Easter House People in Power from 1984. And it includes uh, interviews with uh, a journalist from The Voice from the, the local community paper up in Easter House. And the guy talks about these uh, police from, from London and from Belfast all coming to Easter House after... Uh, these explosions uh, in the mid 1980s to to go why why didn't that happen in Easter House like what can the state learn like why was it successfully avoided here these mm-hmm. riots and these this uh, resistance and the the journalist says that the the cops were obsessed uh, with race with this racist explanation okay saying that it's because depressing. there was there was no black people in Easter House <sighs> that that's how there was no riots. And he says they toured the scheme and they kept coming back. They kept trying to get a local community to to take this standpoint. But the journalist said that the reason there was no riots in Eastern House was because there was not a single bit of private property in the whole scheme. Right. That people could riot from one end of Eastern House to the other and it wouldn't be called a riot because there was nothing of value in terms of private value to destroy and that the only thing people could attack in a way was themselves. Hmm. So... It's interesting because these, like, even further back in the 19th century as well, there was attempts to kind of portray the docile Scottish worker uh, as different from kind of rebellious uh, Irish workers that had come into the city. And skipping forward to 2011, um, again, when there was riots in London and Manchester across England, that same thing didn't happen in Glasgow. And again, you had these journalists, a credible article in the Daily Record where they brought on these different academics and journalists and, and officials to opine about why the riots didn't reach Glasgow. And again, there's had one academic, Sterling, was saying, yeah, because there was uh, fewer ethnic minorities in Glasgow, in Scotland, that's why the riots did. I mean, this is in 2011. Uh, saying that. Sorry, um, I'm, I'm kind of nodding my head and kind of astonished. It, it, it's, it's, in, it's incredible, uh, you know, 
in this way saying that they're um, in England they patronise and mm. condescend to mm. ethnic minorities they mm. do, they're not strict enough just this incredible openly racist explanation yeah, yeah quite but there was other interesting ones though like one uh, explanation was that uh, the minor strike was not as serious in Scotland as in England so this rupture between police and communities that had taken place during the minor strike was somehow less bad I don't, I don't, Scotland, I don't see how that's related <laughs> I, so the other thing was saying that yeah, people in Scotland somehow had a more meaningful connection to their own history compared to England that also the urban structure was different as well because right. in Glasgow and Edinburgh, the rich and poor didn't live cheek by jowl, so somehow this meant that riots were less likely to occur. Mm. And lots of stuff about the rain, <laughs> you know, that because it was raining up here, that that was the main explanation why there was no riots. And again, looking back, like um, in the 1820, you had the this kind of the Scottish insurrection, this mm. uh, uprising of weavers and other workers across the west of Scotland. Um, yeah, that took place in 1820. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. a, an amazing account of one of the dragoons that was involved in, in suppressing the uprising. And he, he talks about how, yeah, in a way, all the military pre preparations and repression was far less important than the fact that it just rained to the heavens. <laughs> uh, downpoured and that stop, day in 1820. Stop people gathering. <laughs> yeah, so it's just like these incredible kind of cycles of repression but also how that history is is seen and also in a way that those absences have also shaped the city because obviously in the wake of that Brixton you had the Scarman report you had these major investigations about what was happening in England's inner cities that had led to these riots and explosions and in a way because that didn't happen in, in Glasgow and uh, schemes in Edinburgh in a way, it's like everything's fine in Scotland. You know, we're better than England. There's no reason to... But it doesn't, it doesn't explain things like, you know, I mean, going back to Mary Barber's strike, which is obviously, you know, the most well-known one. You know, that starts in Glasgow. The rent strike starts in Glasgow and then it spreads nationwide from Glasgow. So, and there was, you know, the, the, the method of how they organised that strike in Glasgow is completely fascinating. But, you know, how would you do the same thing in some of the English towns and cities where you had a completely different architectural form you don't got you've not got the tenement which you know down in in england is associated with poverty whereas in scotland it covers all classes mm. so you don't you don't have the same kind of structure of like you know um say eight different families living in living together collectively in a close and kind of you know having the same um collective responses to the pressures that they were under yeah although i guess it's like yeah, people find a way, <laughs> no, no matter what. And but yeah, like you say, as the specific forms of housing struggle are, yeah, to a greater or lesser extent, going to be shaped by that physical environment. So, yeah, in the in the, that account of the nineteen fifteen rent strikes, uh, Joseph Melling yeah talks about that how this enforced collectivity of the tenement was kind of crucial to how the form of the 1915 rent strike took place in terms of kind of uh, tenement committees, uh, mm. kitchen meetings, mm. backcourt meetings. And yeah, and that was, you had that physical setup in a way and that this idea, yeah, in an industrial strike, you're locked out, but in a rent strike, 
you're in the fortification. Yeah. The women held yes. the houses yeah. against the factors, and there's the famous accounts of the factors, you know, being attacked with peas and soot meal and everything when they come and try and evict people. But sure. I think, but I mean, also like, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just wondering. Could could it be that you know after? I mean, you, you, the point where you've got your riots in the 1950s, and then. Um, Beyond that, from the 1960s onwards, you get the comprehensive development area policies and the, mm -hmm. the tenement as a kind of structure um, that helps structure working class communities is smashed and you get a whole load of working class neighborhoods that are cleared, you know, completely cleared, obliterated as a consequence of that. And those, the soft networks you need in all of those communities to kind of tie, you know, the society together is obliterated as part of that and people are scattered to the four winds across the, the city and kind of end up randomly in kind of neighborhoods on the external edges of the city. So those those ties are all massively weakened by that. Could it be something to do with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, and it's this, uh, yeah, debate, you know, <laughs> to what extent, you know, were these developments and kind of post-war slum clearance and urban regeneration and comprehensive redevelopment, you know, it's, it's much more extreme in Glasgow than it is in any of the English cities. So yeah, and in a way that, that also though the housing situation in Glasgow was more extreme. So for mm. so there's mm. a, yeah, and, and that uh, Charles Johnson's PhD does this amazing um, little table mm -hmm. about the percentage in, in different Scottish and English cities of people living in uh, yeah one room houses uh, without uh, internal bathroom, and the numbers are in, in crazy. I mean, in Glasgow you had the fifth. 50 percent of population living in one or two rooms yeah. in uh, in nineteen fifty one. Yeah, yeah, sure. The next equivalent city, um, Leeds or Manchester, is about you know three percent, four percent. I mean, so the the levels of of overcrowding are just incomparable uh, to anywhere else in Britain. But I think it's that's why it's interesting to go back. That it's like we look back now, and I think it's a bit this romanticisation about you know could we have saved the tenements and and this kind of nostalgia that is a bit taken out of context and if you look at like Harry McShane and other leading figures on the, in the Clydeside workers movement they were constantly saying that slum clearance wasn't proceeding fast enough you know that, that the new scheme building wasn't proceeding fast enough so yeah I think that emergency the pressures from both sides I am, I, I'm, 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 I'm really fascinated by this because it was one, one of the things we touched on one of the previous podcasts and I was speaking to um, uh Reverend Dr. John Harvey of the Goebbels Group, um, mm -hmm. who's like in his late 80s, but still as sharp as attack and still completely open-minded and want to know about stuff. And um, and it was about his experience in the Goebbels at the time and how they, you know, sent delegations to the to the council and to say, you know, please don't don't destroy the area, don't do it. It was the first of the comprehensive development areas. Mm -hmm. Don't destroy the area. What it needs is is reform. What it needs is investment in the buildings. It needs infrastructure. But you don't necessarily have to bulldoze the entire thing and scatter the community while you're at it. And they just weren't listened to. And for me, it was really fascinating to discover that, um, you know, the city had sent delegations when they were looking at the, um, uh, the motorway network and kind of, you know, recreating it. So like kind of the white heat technology stuff, great leap forward for Glasgow that you kind of completely re-geared this Victorian Edwardian city to something that's fit for the future. And this great leap forward is going to solve all of our problems because we're going to shift the emphasis onto to the car rather than a walkable city. Um, and they send these delegations to the states to look at it. And for me, that's completely fascinating because you get people like you uh, ever come across um, Dr. Mindy Thompson Fullerlove, 
in the States. Who's, she's really interesting. Um, so she's, she writes on this as a neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And funnily enough, Glasgow sends a delegation to Pittsburgh to find out what, what, you know, what they're doing with, uh, with their um, expressways there. And one of the expressways carved its way right through an African-American neighborhood, which was incredibly culturally interesting, really rich and vibrant African-American neighborhood and completely destroys it, replaces it with, you know, this expressway and a huge conference center and the community are scattered to the four winds. And it's, she writes this book in it called Root Shock. And it's all to do with the impact on that community and how it, you know, it destroys the integrity of the community, it completely undermines their, their spirit. Um, and it creates a sense of kind of ennui in the community that, um, you know, they've lost a sense of purpose because the, their surroundings have been completely destroyed. And you look at that and you look at what happened uh, when they were creating the, the inner ring road or wanting to create the inner ring road in Glasgow. And I just look at that and I see all the parallels. It was this community that people were embarrassed about um, because they thought it reflected badly on, on Glasgow. So it was, you know, it was the, the worst slum in Northern Europe. And it was like, right, okay, let's not try and fix the problem. Let's just obliterate it and, and, and we'll forget about it. And, and it's, it's that that kind of really, really disturbs me, those, those parallels that, you know, what we've done. If you look at it now, you think, why would you have done something so incredibly racist? And it may be not racist here, but we've done the same thing in terms of classism. We've, yeah. we've, we've wiped out a, a working class community that everyone was slightly ashamed of. And yet we're some with a really interesting, fascinating culture. Yeah, because it's interesting because there's a uh, Oscar Marzaroli uh, film, Glasgow 1981, that was made in 1971. That's this kind of propaganda vision for what you were talking about. You know, it's amazing. It's a great film, uh, you know, and the kind of jazzy music and the car going over the Kingston Bridge and this brave future where women are playing squash. And I don't know, it's like um, we're all working in these high tech industries. But there's a William McIlvaney, who's the author of Laidlaw, wrote the introduction to Marzaroli's um, collection, Shades of Grey. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favourite pieces of writing about Glasgow. And, and he, he mentions, yeah, you know, he talks about this kind of slum clearance and the post-war redevelopment and the, the fact that changes had to be made. But they were made by people, uh, yeah, with all the imagination of soldier ants mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these Labour officials that should have known better, the idea was that um, working class aspirations stopped at an inside toilet and uh, yeah, nothing would be lost basically by unstitching and demolishing these communities that had built a way of life over centuries and uh, this kind of malignant implication was that there was no such thing as working class culture so nothing yeah. would be lost yes. by destroying things in this way. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that... <laughs> is even more so the case now, you know, in a sense, at least for all the mistakes was made, that was the first time where you had this mass programme, a council house building, you know, mm. overwhelming concern, whether, you know, despite all the contradictions that everything that happened, you know, was a concern with how do you provide decent housing for the majority mm. of people mm. in the city for the first time that is going to be publicly mm-hmm. owned and basically a right for people. And I think, you know, what's happening now in the city is worse <laughs> in a sense is that the kind of demolitions and social cleansing we're seeing and this highly unequal urban development, its only aim is to 
privatise <laughs> the remains of social housing to sell off land for private speculation and development to break apart <laughs> what you know was achieved in the sense that you know the housing issue is not what it was in 1945 mm. but we're starting to see more and more those inequalities in a housing condition and and unaffordable rent it's, it's depressing and overall development that yeah it's not like for what end you know at least at that period in the in the 50s and 60s they're dealing with extreme crisis and also you know that was the demands from the slum dwellers themselves in a way was for clearance you know obviously there was battles fought over how that happened but i so I, but i think like um yeah, that, that point, though, about you were saying about this delegation, I think, is really interesting, and that kind of appears at certain points. It does, it does. Glasgow Corporation. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the talk I did, you know, that the, in the, the mid-19th century, before the City Improvement Acts in the 1870s, this delegation from the corporation go and visit Paris and Baron von Hausmann. Yes, yeah, Lord Provost you know, Blackie and Dr. William Gardner. And, exactly, um, yeah. yeah um, and um, there's John Carrick. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, the, you know, there's lots of debate about Hausmann and what that meant for Paris and, you know, it's kind of militarization of the boulevards. And, totally. There's, there's a great um, Emile Zola uh, novel on this, um, Le, Le Cure, which is the kill. And it's all about the speculators making all the money on the back of what Hasman's doing because they're able to get access to his plans and they're buying up the land. I mean, like unofficially get access to his plans and they're buying up the land along these kind of great avenues and, and yeah. just speculating and making an absolute killing on it. And it's the cynicism of it. And I do wonder, I'd love to see a kind of Glasgow equivalent of that if there were people doing the same thing in Glasgow. Because I expect there probably were in various parts, you know, that they knew that these things were coming, not just in the, in the 1860s and 70s, but also in the 1950s onwards, that people knew well, and they were speculating. And, and well, much more recently, and you were saying you've had Chris Leslie and Mitch Miller on, and obviously they yeah, were involved in different projects or in the Commonwealth Games uh, in 2014 that were held in Glasgow, and there was Neil Gray and Libby Porter and others that ran the Glasgow Games Monitor. Um, yeah, to try to take a bit of a critical eye on this mega event in the East End. And yeah, Chris kind of documented the eviction of Margaret Giaconelli by hundreds of police from our flat. And the Games Monitor documented these, well, I don't know, seemingly extremely corrupt land deals that were happening around the East End in terms of the council, mm -hmm. um, you know, selling land very cheap around the East End to certain developers and speculators who then sold it back to the council for tens of millions of yeah, pounds yes. more. You know, so I yes. think like you can see, but in a way now that that's not, that is our standard model of regeneration. Like that's nothing to be ashamed about, you know, and that, you know, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And that, you know, this, you know, compulsory purchase order was used to evict Margaret Draconelli, but mm. not to, take any of the land that was needed around the East End mm. from the developers. So mm -hmm. I think, but I think to go back though to your point about what was, you know, that kind of way of life and networks that were built up over a hundred years and then people being scattered to to the four corners. But then you look in Easter House, at Castlemilk, uh, Drumchapel, Pollock, like people did, <laughs> it took a long time, but in those environments, people did again start to recreate the basis for yeah, collective yeah, organisation yes. and the schemes and, um, yeah, it's interesting, like WEA pamphlet, Castle Milk People's History Group, the big flit, 
where, yeah, just talks like people obviously done the only spaces where the churches initially, you know, and also mm. community gardens, for example, mm-hmm. Castlemont, that was the only place people could physically come and meet. Yeah. But over the decades, they built up the tenants' associations, the residents' associations, and then, you know, around the poll tax and the claimants' unions and Easter House, you had the Easter House summer festival, you had, um, you know, rent strikes and big campaigning around the, the Rent Act in the 1970s. You had a whole kind of radical culture that people forged and forced the authorities to yeah take stock of the extreme conditions that the houses were falling into. And then, yeah, we, we had a event last night at the CCA uh, with Live and Rent and mm-hmm. the Workers' Stories Project. We showed six different housing films in memory, uh, uh, Catherine McCormick, the Easter House activist, and, and Gary, her son, uh, spoke really beautifully, yeah, just about her legacy and his experience as well of, of growing up in those conditions and the kind of process of self-education that Cathy went through mm-hmm. um, in order to kind of gain the knowledge and the power she needed to to fight, um, yeah, for a radical change in the in the housing conditions and in East Hall and the, the campaigning they did for his new... Uh, sustainable houses there and a struggle that, that she was fighting until the very end of her, her life. So I think, yeah, people did find a way uh, to come together. And, you know, it's interesting compared to 1915, there was a big, you know, you're fighting in a city where 90% of the housing stocks owned by private landlords. Yeah. 70s, 80s, you know, your new landlord is Glasgow, uh, Glasgow Housing Department. Yeah. You know, but in a way, it doesn't matter who, you know, the tenants everyone is going to keep fighting for for a basic dignified life so I think um, like we were coming back uh, so on Saturday just there uh, we had an action with Living Rent uh, in Deniston and one of our members Pirette is living in a private let she's been there for 11 years with four children and uh, I don't know if you've seen any pictures but the, the level of mould like mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. like the entire house covered in black mold. Right. Uh, no heating upstairs <laughs> yeah. until a few months ago. Walls crumbling and collapsing, and uh, letting agency blaming <laughs> Pirette for yeah breathing too much. Uh, you're taking the hot showers. You're not opening the windows. You know, but this is exactly what Cathy uh, McCormick and also the the dampness campaign fought against this. The first thing is to, yeah, take away this shame, this individualized shame where people are blamed for their own conditions. Um, and there's a yeah, to- totally. It's straight back to kind yeah. of Victorian or Dickensian stuff. Yeah. and you know, a, a kind of like a warm home it should be a human right. Yeah, but I think like, but in a way, what we're saying about you know this thing about things repeating or lessons being learned, and you know, without the pressure. <laughs> Of a of a housing movement, then the regression to the mean yes. is for yeah, private yeah, interests and even the state to exploit <laughs> housing to a maximum degree to extract the most from it while investing the least. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, like that. So, like, it was just interesting though because we've done this stuff with housing struggle archive. You know, I sat down with one of the living rent organisers before the action. We were looking, uh, we were reading Cathy's book, The Wee Yellow Butterfly. We were mm-hmm, looking at mm-hmm. the account of the rent strikes in the Hutch E in the 1980s mm-hmm. and the dampness monster. Yes. The slogans they were using, the demands, and yeah, applying them, 
you know, quite directly yeah. to this situation we were in today. So, um, yeah. Uh, so it's yeah. Right, kind of it bring, brings you on to my next question, which is all about you know what what you're doing is like it's about you know in order to avoid falling back into those traps again, you need to know your history, and so it's all about unearthing and then recording these hidden histories and bringing them back out into the light. And obviously, um, you know, lockdown has helped with some of that because it's given people the time and the space to explore some of that. So. And during lockdown, and this is certainly something I did, um, we kind of, you know, was able to explore the, the, the streets of the surrounding area that I thought I knew and then was discovering all the stuff while I was doing it. So mm. and guided walks can reveal even more. Um, but, you know, the, the, what, what you're doing with, uh, with, the, with the Glasgow Housing Archive, Housing Struggle Archive, um, is exploring, you know, your, uh, this kind of idea of a different kind of city walking tour. So can you tell us anything about that and, you know, how you're going about doing that? Uh, I so it's uh, one thing I've uh, been looking at is the work of uh, Neil Gray, who's a mm-hmm. housing scholar and activist uh, based in Glasgow. And, yeah, he's been involved over, for example, in the Glasgow anti-stock transfer campaign. And, yeah, has uh, done masses of work into, yeah, the politics of regeneration and, uh, yeah, urban development in Glasgow, especially in the East End, around the Commonwealth Games and in the north side of the city as well. So... One kind of idea he's taken, sorry, is um, this idea of the territorial inquiry. Okay. So kind of emerging from these workers' inquiries that that took place um, in Italy in the 1960s during the kind of hot, <laughs> hot years uh, of of strikes and and uh, resistance and and. In industrial towns in Italy in the nineteen sixties mm-hmm. and the, the huge car factories in Turin, and yeah, they are really trying to have a close investigation of what is the real material, social, economic, cultural consciousness factors within a factory, within one industrial unit, and what are all the technical connections, the political connections, and using mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this real investigation and knowledge as the basis for your political organising, rather than just kind of abstract generalities. So a lot of Neil's work has been about how, yeah, especially in, in Britain, that the main sites of capital accumulation now are less in the in industry, but really in land and in property. Like this is how capital is uh, accumulating at the moment. This is the main ways how it passes through the built environment, how land is regeneration, how regenerated, how rent gaps are closed. So on that basis, like shifting this idea, the workers inquiry and in, and the factory into the territory, like the neighborhood and a, a kind of spatial composition of capital. So yeah, so he's been developing this kind of idea of the territorial inquiry, just a way of kind of walking through uh, space in your city mm-hmm. and really trying to think what is happening yeah. there. Yeah. So we did one in uh, Partick, I think. I can't, I can't remember if it was before or after the first lockdown. But really kind of walking through Partick, like the new build-to-rent accommodation, the student developments down by the Clyde, uh, Glasgow Harbour. Yes. Uh, the older 
uh, tenement parts and kind of each person. So I was looking at some of the kind of radical history in Partick. Other people had investigated the uh, kind of international uh, investment funds that were involved in building different aspects of the student housing. Other people looked at how the former land along the river and the owned by the Port Authority yeah. is now in the hands of, you know, these speculative companies. Yes. And yes. it's just really a useful way to actually physically just walk through a space to go from one end to the other and think, yeah, who owns the land? Who was here before? Who owns it now? What are the conditions of the house and what are the points in common between all the different tenures here? What are the differences? And kind of recording that walk, writing it up, mm -hmm. leading to kind of further points of investigation. So, um, yeah, so that's something you know, we're hoping to definitely do to do more of and to do in different uh yeah, local areas and then the results of these investigations can be, yeah, recorded through the House and Struggle Archive and maybe yeah, you meet people, you speak to people, new things emerge, new things, connections yeah, come I, up. I, I love so, love doing walking tours. So yeah. Big big fan of that because it's a great way to connect with people and it's a great way to kind of explain um facets of the city that are not necessarily obvious and explain how a city's yeah. changed over time and what, what the implications of that are and you know mm -hmm. and how you know cities are always changing so it's 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 trying to get that across to people i think is 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 a really it's a worthwhile way of doing it it's a great way to connect yeah and it's a challenge too i mean one of the things having led many walking tours there's nothing worse than somebody's eyes glazing over when you're talking to them it's like it's like okay okay that's boring next yeah <laughs> It's a bit bit of a challenge, but I. But I mean, I think it's like um another project I'm involved in just now with the Edwin Morgan Trust is mm -hmm. uh, yeah looking at the life and work of James McFarlane, this kind of 19th century peddler poet who was born in the in the Calton, right? And they wrote yeah a lot of I mean he'd lived in uh, abject poverty his entire life as the usual Glasgow uh, poetic life. I walked from uh, Glasgow to London on foot to get some of his poems published by Dickens and came back up the road here. It was totally ignored. Anyway, but um, yeah, he wrote a lot about the kind of attics and garrets mm -hmm. where he lived and this incredible kind of uh, apocalyptic poem called The Ruined City where he just presents this kind of hellscape vision of, of, of Glasgow in the, in the mid-19th century. Right. So it's kind of looking at his work and also uh, the work of Edwin Morgan mm -hmm. Uh, the 20th century Scottish poet and his kind of Glasgow sonnets, I think one of the best bits of writing, trying to think through uh, Glasgow's redevelopment in the 1970s, to kind of use their writing to look at what's happening in Glasgow now, where it, in a way there's not a poet of uh, ur urban change in Glasgow. You know, there's far less discourse around it compared to, for example, the 19th century, or, you know, we're still talking a lot about slum clearance, comprehensive redevelopment, whereas, you know, the transformational regeneration areas, you know, that are taking place across Glasgow just now, you know, are receiving far less kind of discussion. And actually, you know, the work of Mitch Miller and Chris Leslie hmm. are some of the few people that have really documented this latest round of, of regeneration Glasgow, the demolition of the high-rises, uh, transformation of places like Site Hill. And yeah, I guess it's just interesting that in a way, despite all our technology and the you know social media and the massive amount of information that's exchanged constantly, 
that I think there's far less being talked about Glasgow now or far less understanding about the processes of change happening right. in the city now compared to previous uh, periods. So, you know, I took a walk through the city centre like looking at McFarland's route. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this huge um, Barclays Bank development on the south side of the Clyde that has just arisen with all this associated uh, luxury build to rent. Under the Kingston Bridge, yeah. that's this new Kingston Key, another mm-hmm. huge development you know, of massive build-to-rent uh, private equity capital investments. Yeah. The same time I was up in Site Hill the other day, um, and that's constantly, you know, this is the biggest project outside Glasgow's £250 million regeneration of Site Hill. Yes. You know, it's interesting up there, there's been 140 GHA houses built. The tenants that managed to stick out the very end of their tenancies on Site Hill are... Got, I've got flats now. Right. The rest of the site, it's quite incredible. It's just fencing everywhere. <laughs> like there's this fancy entranceway of Springburn Road. You walk up, it ends in a fence. Right. You walk back down Pinkston Drive, another fence. You have to kick in a bit of a fence to get into the scheme. You walk around, the whole thing is is kind of fenced off or empty. Mm-hmm. You know, all along Site Hill Cemetery, like you can't get out, <laughs> you can't cross the road to get into it. Right. And I was speaking to someone, like one of the few people I met there, and uh, she was saying that's because they're still remediating the land from Ah, all the chemical damage. But some people are living there, others not. You know, that was in Site Hill, that was two and a half thousand units, a council house, and it was built that's been replaced by 140 GHA flats and then 800 private bought flats, some mid market rent. So, you know, that's a huge change. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's mass erasure to yeah. that community. Very few people are going to be able to come back. But again, there's not, like, where can you discuss this mm. in a way? Mm-hmm. And I think it's even interesting looking at these kind of Glasgow Corporation housing films throughout the 20, you know, after the war, um, where you have these kind of propaganda films in a way. Yes. Yeah. But explaining and talking about these huge changes that are taking place, like high-rise flats, the motorway, the new schemes. But there is some kind of critical discussion in those films about the problems Glasgow faces, about the problems, the inequalities, the contradictions in the urban plans. Whereas now, well, if you go on the Glasgow City Council YouTube, you know, there's not films being made discussing what is happening in Site Hill or any kind of critical potential you know that maybe there's some questionable things happening or things that you can talk about or challenge so i think i in a way because of all the processes the change that's happened that yeah in a way we have much less knowledge at the moment and we're facing a much more difficult process to understand and also to combat you know and there's a kind of hegemonic discourse that Urban regeneration, this is the only path, the correct path, that there's no room for discussion that, you know, private investment, private house and the self of public land, that this is the answer yes. uh, to Glasgow's problems. But, yeah. you know, you look at this huge development that's happening in the city centre, you know, in the financial district, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seven lux- new luxury hotels in Glasgow city centre. Mm-hmm. Yet we've just seen the budget released there, <laughs> you know, cuts to Mitchell Library, cuts to sport, cuts to communities, cuts mm-hmm. to cleansing. And you're thinking, well, how come Glasgow could afford these things in the 70s and 80s? 
And we can't now. We're much still, poorer. We're, yeah, yeah, we're like, supposed to be a richer society. Yeah, this, yeah. that's a so very what, good question. What is all this huge speculative urban development? What? Where is the money going? Who is benefiting from this? You know, why? You know, how can this two stories be told that this is the Glasgow miracle? And at the same time, you know, the basic infrastructure of the city is crumbling. So, but I, so I think it's, you know, there's not necessarily a clear answer, but at least that we can critically discuss it. And through living rent, we're seeing the consequences every day in terms of, yeah, rent increases, housing quality, damp mould, sure. a basic breakdown. Okay. And you're right to housing. Sorry. <laughs> okay, no, no, no. Long, I'm, I'm, I, uh, that brings me on to the next point, which is the role of, 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 of women in mm. um, you know, Glasgow's housing struggles. And it just comes up again and again and again, the central role that women play in these struggles. And it's something that I'm wanting to talk about in our podcast with the Glasgow Women's Library, um, which is going to come further on in the series. So you have generations of women who have done these incredibly inspiring things in Glasgow and achieved remarkable results in terms of the housing in the city. And so I just wanted to ask you how that had come about and is that role now changing? Yeah, and the way that the first thing to say is that that history, uh, women's, yeah, political organising and movements has been consistently marginalised and not only by official narratives but within uh, labour history itself and within the labour movement. So um, there's an amazing film called uh, Red Skirts on Clydeside that was made by the Sheffield Film Co-op in the 1970s that told really for the first time or in a long time the story of the 1915 rent strikes and they met and they interviewed uh, women who as children remembered growing up at the time of the rent strikes uh, were involved in the rent strikes and the film is interesting because it shows the women uh, who were doing the historical research and they go to the Marx Memorial Library, I think it is, and they're looking in different archives, working class archives, and there's nothing about the rent strikes. There's no box marked women mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. housing. And they eventually find this box marked miscellaneous that's like <laughs> packed at the back of the way that has some of the documents about this. So, you know, now it seems obvious, but in a way, like that, even that, that story in 1915, which is probably the most successful action or campaign ever fought by the by the Scottish working class in terms of, you know, its immediate results. And, uh, yeah, that was really marginalised. So, like, um, Willie Gallagher, you know, his famous uh, Revolt in the Clyde, barely mentions that. Harry McShane in, in his uh, autobiography talks about how, yeah, that, even within the working class movement, you know, most of the women, well, McShane or John McLean or Willie Gallagher, that they also were very traditional, that they were wage slaves and their women were slaves of the slaves, you know, uh, even within, you know, the most radical elements, the workers' movement. So, you know, it's been a long process. It was a long process to recover that history in 1915, you know, against the prejudices of the labour movement itself and th and that's just more generally as well that housing is always this like secondary issue to workplace and industrial struggles but actually 
It's been provided the kind of context for some of the most radical and successful struggles have been in housing rather than yeah, being in industry much. in Glasgow. Yes. So I think, um, yeah, so the Women's Library, I think, has played a, a, a crucial role in kind of sharing that history. And we, we had another, one of the films that we showed last night was um, about the Take Root uh, Women's Self-Build Co-op uh, that was organising in Glasgow in the 1990s, mm-hmm. where as a response to yeah homelessness and precarious housing, um, that a group of women formed a, a self-built co-op that trained up as construction workers to work with Mullendiner Housing Association to build the houses and to build the kind of housing uh, that would meet their needs for the first time. And yeah, raised funds and over years and years and years led this project only for at the last minute for all the funding to be pulled because it was supposedly sexist that this would have been a uh, only housing only for women, you know, and you can imagine the kind of tabloid campaigns that were taking place at the time. And um, yeah, and the Kathy McCormick's archive as well, which is is now at the Glasgow Women's Library, and Kathy meticulously kind of documented yes, all I'm, the years that East Hall Residents yeah, Association. I'm, I'm, partic- so, I'm particularly interested in what Kathy did as well. It's kind of my ne- my next question for you is all about what what Kathy yeah. did and how you know her fight against the mould. You know, was this kind of incredibly powerful collaboration with the, the East House residents and architects and scientists scientists which resulted in this kind of you know innovative method to cut dampness and high fuel costs and yet we're going through that again yeah you know yeah it's dreadfully depressing why is it happening again well i think um yeah just just to go back a wee bit you know that women have been in the leadership of housing struggles because they have been the ones that have suffered the consequences the most you know because of you know, everything we know about how society is structured, that, yeah, women were the one dealing with the rents, that were dealing with housing conditions, that were trying to maintain the conditions of a dignified life and conditions of extreme overcrowding, poverty, poor housing, and also having to fight the prejudices, yeah, within their own families and within the working class movement itself. So I think, you know, Cathy's, you know, you read her book and Cathy's story, like, yeah, people don't want to become activists. You know, people yeah. just want to yes. have it, have yeah. a dignified, decent, fulfilling life without having to constantly fight. But Kathy, you know, the other she came back from the hospital with house, uh, healthy babies, and she took them home, and she had sick children. Yeah, and this kind of shame that yeah attacks you because it's like you're responsible for this. You know, why is this happening? You can't share this with anyone else because it's so, so shameful. But eventually, you know, her being forced to to overcome that and then fight this incredible battle against Glasgow Housing Department officials, against uh, elements, uh, you know, scientific establishment. Gary talked yesterday that he quoted this academic at the time saying that he was certain that there was no connection between bad housing and poor health, you know, <laughs> signing off and stuff. So, like... Kathy was forced to fight this and through this, you know, recognising that her individual problems were the problems of her community and the problems of her community were those of communities across Glasgow and then eventually the world, you know, in South Africa and Nicaragua and this the film that we showed last night that she made, uh, you know, was called The War uh, Without Bullets, you know, this 
poverty that was killing more people than, than bombs and guns. And this kind of innovative approach where she talks about, yeah, as well as organising East Hall Residents Association, making links with middle-class professionals, with technical service agencies, with professors, architects at GSA, mm-hmm. to kind of build that coalition um, that could put the pressure needed on the housing department to get the changes they need. But constantly, you know, in her book, she constantly talks about fighting these battles with people on your side or well-meaning professionals that are constantly in a way, trying to take her voice away from her or speak for her and speak for her community. And that, yeah, this kind of process of radical education, organising mm-hmm. and fighting that she did, that, you know, it's... And that that's the thing, it's like, <laughs> as soon as that pressure stops and it takes a massive toll on people trying to raise a family, trying to survive in poverty, trying to survive your house and trying to kill you, as well as organising and activism... You know, it's a difficult process. It takes its toll on people. And as soon as, you know, those movements can be sidelined or repressed, then again, you just revert to this mean where the state and uh, private capital's interest in working class housing, if at all, is to invest as little as possible from it and to extract the maximum from it. And that's why we're seeing these housing conditions uh, reappearing today yeah. because without pressure from below, then the interest of builders and speculators and officials and landlords is that housing is not a home, it's a commodity to yes, be speculated yeah, on. So it seems to be a particularly um, you know, British disease, unfortunately, that. And it's, it's so frustrating. Um, it, yeah, it really, it really does depress me. I mean, I, I come from Hong Kong originally. And, you know, one thing that really angers me is um, when you get Tory politicians, and I know I'm not meant to be political, um, but talking about, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong as being these kind of societies to kind of um, aspire to. And yet they're both the biggest public housing landlords in the world, and they really look after the, the, the people. And... You know, it's so frustrating that we've gone and completely, we start, we, we, we kind of went in that direction in the 1950s and we've completely abandoned it from the 1980s onwards. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that that is the overall lesson from the Glasgow House Struggle Archive is that without tenants organising, without housing movements from below, then you won't win anything. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, you're saying you're not meant to be political you know, I think that's the other question is that this, you know, this form of kind of market-led state-facilitated urban development mm-hmm. that we're seeing in Glasgow is presented as beyond politics. Mm-hmm. You know, Tory, Labour, Green, SNP, it doesn't matter who's been in the council chambers. Like, it's almost unquestionable that what's happening you know, it's, it's beyond, it's presented as beyond politics, mm. you know, so we've just seen like an R16% budget cut to social housing budget, but, you know, this sell-off of public land in Glasgow, uh, the destruction of social housing, the demolition of communities like Site Hill, this is presented as a natural, inevitable process, you know, nobody is challenging that planning framework mm. from mm-hmm. within any of those parties because, is seen as kind of inevitable and within a wider system it is you know Glasgow you have to compete you have to this kind of boosterist approach you have to attract private investment you have to 
you know, stop anything that might, uh, yeah, put off potential investors. So I think that's what we're trying to do as well as intervene within living rent is that there is a different vision for housing for our city, you know, that Cathy and others have fought for. Yeah, and it's not, but it's completely necessary because aye, this current one is not <laughs> working okay, but the vast that, majority of people. That, that brings me on to my next question, which is, you know, basically how you how you present that. And in terms of, you know, street names tell a story about, you know, the history of the city and how those street names came about, but development and re- redevelopment and, you know, demolition of the, the city bring a sense of loss, which is a, a theme of our podcast. Um, but can you explain why words matter in the past and present stories of Glasgow's housing struggle? You know, how, how are you going to use that to, to, to improve things? Yeah, well, I think... So the basic thing about looking at this history is that you see people have organised in the past in the streets and in the same community where you are now. You know, it breaks down this sense of inevitability that you're just kind of pushed by these forces from above to go along with whatever. And I think, like, the words are really important. Well, so, for example, like uh, this Glasgow Harbour development. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously down by Partick. But Partick has been erased from the name of that development. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think about Partick, you can make these connections back to 1915, back to the rent strikes. Partick was one of the, the centres of that, you know, histories of industrial organisation, yeah, of migration. And it's interesting that, yeah, that this is, you're not Partick Harbour, these investors, you're not coming to live in a specific uh, area of a specific city with its own history, its own tradition. It's just this abstract bit of land in yes. a luxury yeah, house yeah. that could be yep. anywhere. If yeah. you look in, uh, I did some work with some young people that uh, live in the, the scheme in Townhead. So another place being erased, like they're literally being hemmed in on all sides by uh, student accommodation, by the college, by the expansion of Strathclyde University, surrounded by libraries and swim pools and bars and rooftop terraces they can't access. And they're saying that, yeah, like the name of Townhead is disappearing. Like there's nothing, yeah. there's no signs to Townhead. Yes. You can't even see into it now from George Square. Yeah. It's this uh, college lands. This yes. is the name of this new area. Nobody has a connection to that is meaningless for anyone in the city. But again, kind of flattens... The space of the city just makes it this abstract space where people can invest and live yep, and leave. Ab- absolutely. It reminds me of, um, uh, I used to sit in the Glasgow Urban Design Panel. The Glasgow Urban Design Panel, basically, you know, it, any kind of big scheme that's going to affect the city it tends to get run past the Glasgow Urban Design Panel. It's not a statutory body. Mm-hmm. Um, so the plans don't necessarily have to listen to it, but they get input from kind of various kind of people in Glasgow who might be expert in the city or amenity groups in the city or architecture groups in the city um, to kind of get their say on things. And there was one that came to us about Glasgow Harbour, which was when they were looking to develop um, a kind of shopping centre around, you know, the Riverside Museum. And... Um, and all the images that were getting projected were kind of like people in fancy clothes, drinking wine and you know, like, you know, Lambrusco and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and it was like somebody finally popped up and said, you know, the image you're projecting doesn't really have an awful lot to do with Partick, which is literally right next door to this. You know, yeah. would you care to comment? And, and the guy actually, you know, 
to give him credit, at least he was honest, honest enough to say, yeah, it's not really the image we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah. like, but it's totally disconnected from the actuality of the city. And, yeah. and you know, that's, you're not trying to connect into these neighborhoods at all. You're, not, you're just not interested. It's, it's all about the money. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like that's, yeah, connections between the past and the present are also to, yeah, think about different futures as well. And we just did this project with the Travelling Gallery uh, Resistance and Residence looking at kind of histories of, yeah, resistance and also different kind of urban theories in in Edinburgh and Glasgow, so like in in Western Hale and Pilton and Muirhouse. And... Yeah, and also like the work of architects and theorists like Phyllis Birkby and Yona Friedman. Mm-hmm. And that's our thing, it's just this poverty of vision. That, and it's like, you know, again, in that post war era, yeah, you had a, this grand vision of modernist vision, for better or worse, about, yeah, how people should live and how cities should be designed. Yeah. And it's funny now that the same things are happening now in terms of, but Without discussion, so again, like in, in Site Hill, I was looking on Collective Architecture's website about their award-winning development. And it's just interesting, you know, you've got these kind of two-storey kind of townhouse, garden, uh, kind of street, just the layout of the streets. And they're talking about, yeah, that they want to redesign the relationship between public and private space. Mm-hmm. You know, some people like, others don't, but it's just quite interesting that, again, you have a, how the city is being redesigned is yeah, coming from an ideological point of view about how we should relate to each other in spaces, what's desirable mm-hmm. or not, you know, whether consumption should be prioritized. Yeah, this yeah. kind of Lambrisco yes. drinking club. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is it's very two thousand and eight, but two thousand you know, just before the just before the crash. <laughs> yeah. But again it's just presented as like this is just natural. Like this is how we want to live, rather than this is another grand redesign through architecture and urban planning of how they think people should relate to each other and yeah histories of collective struggle are not part of that because they don't they're not designed for that in the present and that's what living rent we're trying to do is like yeah you're because if they're uncomfortable they're uncomfortable yeah. you know it's, it's not something it's 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 about resistance and therefore it's yeah. not something that's an easy sell yeah and i and i think like yeah there's other like in that charles johnson uh phd's uh chapter on a rent strike in arden mm-hmm. uh, in southwest glasgow in 1957-1958 that took place in scottish special housing association housing right and yeah again it's just interesting like you look you know it'd be interesting to work with the housing associations down there and other areas and think you know or even these murals that are appearing around glasgow you know on the on the gable ends Mm -hmm. you know it'd be interesting to yeah can you connect that history to what's happened now can people get a sense you're living in these same houses and the same schemes where people have come together where they have fought yeah you know people had an influence in their own future yes. whereas when that is wiped out then the answer to our present problems isn't people's own organisation it's again saviour from above by the council through private investment so yeah. I think that connection between the past and the future is, is crucial you know it's like you can, who controls the past you control the future and whatever yeah uh, and it's, a, it's about grassroots and yeah. you know some, something evolving organically rather than being imposed yeah Okay, 
Okay, but basically it brings me on to my, my next question, which is, you know, what is next for you? And, you know, people are obviously looking for answers. You know, can a better understanding of Glasgow's housing history help us improve the present and provide more hope for the future? And, you know, did, did the pandemic teach us anything about um, building back better? Uh, yeah, I think, again, it, well, there's this quote from Brecht <laughs> I always like, and he's like, there's not much knowledge that leads to power but there's plenty of knowledge to which only power leads right where and i say it's not just about knowing things we need the power <laughs> to implement the lessons we know from the past so i think that's you know i live in rent we're not a campaigning group or a lobbying group we're a tenants union we're rooted in local communities and the idea is about we're trying to build the power from below where you can take this knowledge and these lessons from the past and enforce them or learn from them. But without having that power, then it doesn't matter in a way. You know, the, this idea of mistakes being repeated, is whose mistakes like is benefiting some people? It's only a mistake for some. So I think, um, you know, so I think we've seen that with the pandemic and the, uh, the Workers' Stories project um, that, and they led this uh, archive of workers' experiences during COVID-19. So people should check it out online and people contributed uh, stories, poetry, films, diaries, documenting workers' experience. But again, without the kind of political organisations and movements, we've seen the COVID, I'm, I'm astounded and how little has changed. I mean, like, if you think even about the COVID and the built environment, like, in your workplaces, like, if there was another pandemic, just in terms of adaptations to windows, yeah. ventilations, like, nothing. I mean, it's actually incredible how little it has changed in a way, but because without this kind of political power, then, yeah, the regression to the mean is always towards inequality. So, but I think we're living in... You know, we are starting to have that influence and build some of the power we need. And yeah, learning from that history, understanding uh, our cities better and seeing the potential for organising today from what has happened in the past, but also without romanticising it, you know, that we've gone through whole periods of defeat uh, as well as victories. But we need to just, um, yeah, have that history to understand it, you mm -hmm. know, to critique it, to learn from it, to use it. And also to add for it and people to contribute to it because I think what I've learned is yeah, there's always a feeling that, that somewhere there's some academic or some researcher looking at all this stuff, but a lot of times there's uh, not and we just need to do it for ourselves. Yes. And people you know, have their own stories, their own documents, their own photographs, their own personal histories. That, mm -hmm. So I think um, we're just trying to provide a framework and, and try to establish a collective kind of take ownership over the archive and collectively decide what we want to do with it you know do we want it to be online or physical sure do we want to just use it to do talks so i think it's open question and again we're not professionals or uh, academics or we've just done this kind of out of our own interest so yeah so the future is open we definitely feel hopeful um, <laughs> that yeah it's possible to change things and we've already, you know, through the pandemic, won a ban on evictions, uh, a rent freeze. These battles over these are being lifted now. So, yeah, 
so the struggle never stops, but you know, you can take great inspiration from it as well. <laughs> Good. Okay, final question. And this is always a loaded question, and people's answers to it are always really fascinating. But what is your favorite building in Glasgow? And it could be visible or invisible. And what would it tell you if it's Glasgow's, if it's Wolves could talk? Well, it's probably a boring answer. I'm sure everyone no, does it. No well. answer is boring. The They're all really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the Mitchell Library is a uh, 100% my favorite building uh, in Glasgow. Um, and yeah, so I think, um, yeah, I've just... Uh, I just like it. You've got all humanity in the Mitchell as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically the last kind of free public space, indoor space in Glasgow. And um, yeah, it's just kind of always new and weird things that I'm finding in there as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I was, I actually did, um, <laughs> I wrote this uh, kind of piece of fiction, semi-fiction about the <laughs> the Mitchell Library once imagined this future where it where the library was closed and a group of uh, librarians and archivists had gone underground <laughs> to try to fight for it. But I was is I think as walls would tell an interesting story because it um, certainly would. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's just that um, yeah, just those contradictions from the past. You know, you've obviously got through Stephen Mitchell. You know, a lot of connections back to Glasgow's colonial mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. slavery past and where that collection emerged from. Yes. You've got um, Carnegie that mm -hmm. laid the final stone that paid for the new building. Yes. Uh, you know, also a very complex history of kind of repression on one hand or another. Absolutely. But I, think in a, but I think it's just, again, to that period where at least the rich in the city left something yeah <laughs> you know in terms of civic infrastructure and whereas now you know there's there's nothing it feels like things are just I know. It's a, the kind of the, the, the days of municipal socialism and kind of you know com completely moved on from that yeah so i think um but yeah so i think the mitchell and, and um yeah i always go back to kind of tom leonard in his collection radical renfrey talked mm -hmm. about always being on the other side and this librarian fairy would go away into stacks to find this mysterious text that he wanted and kind of by going on the other side of it you know he discovered so much so i think um i think it's a it's a huge untapped resource still you know and we did some workshops where we worked with the librarians archivists public workshops where people could come in and just see you know how do you use the filing system how do you get a card how can you mm -hmm. just breaking down those barriers that sure. exist you know where yes. it's quite intimidating so i yeah. think I spend a lot of time in the Mitchell. I'm still into the carpets, and I, I do. <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> They're wonderful. <laughs> I've got a couple of books I need to bring back as well that I will do soon because I've got. I, Very I think they've cancelled. They've cancelled the cancellation fees, the, the overdue fees now. So I, um, I so sneak back yes. in. Yes, classy carpets. Love them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank thank you very much, Joey. That was a complete pleasure pleasure talking to you. Really enjoyable. Cheers. Thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Do you want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. The podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnocks.